Hello everyone and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is your 40k podcast brought to you from a hot desert and or an isolated northern Canadian state and or a well-populated, decently cold, decently nice Canadian state and SoCal location near you. Although none uh, of those states? are probably actually Wait, near you. Yeah, states? there's no states what? in Canada. What it's okay. This? It's okay. Oh, what is this madness? Oh, province, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I only, I only speak American, guys. Uh, it's okay. And for those <laughs> we'll of you, forgive you. <laughs> for those of you regulars listening, that is, of course, Scary, Brandon, and Peter the Falcon. Kaka, swooping in. All right. So now that we have all those introductions out of the way, today's episode is going to be, as you probably figured from the title, be about. Planning ahead in games, a la chess. So one common chess term uh, is that uh, grandmasters think twenty, thirty moves ahead, right? And and so it, it's kind of it's kind of become a an almost uh, a saying or a meme of sorts that if if you think ahead a certain amount um, in chess, that you'll start winning more games. And although there is some truth to thinking ahead, I, I think it's actually a bit of a, a fallacy in in um cognitive processing basically meaning that we it's not actually what you think it means they're not actually physically thinking 20 25 30 moves ahead uh, although sometimes in some cases there are and if you have the mental processing to do that which which in chess sometimes you have to do um you probably have you you probably can however in chess uh in the middle game of chess as in warmer 40k which I'll, i promise i'll loop back into it there are sometimes millions upon millions of potential moves and outcomes and it's it's pretty much almost impossible for a human mind to think of all of those outcomes you have to uh you know come up with tips and uh their strategies and practice and various ways that we're going to be talking about the podcast to kind of kind of uh get past all those and go to help you guys go to make the best decisions possible because that's ultimately what that's about. It's about decision making, clear, accurate decision making in your games of 40k that'll help you become a better 40k player. But before we jump into that, of course if you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Patrons get to access to awesome exclusive content, get to ask us questions at the end of every episode, and get entered to win cool prizes. Also Go on over to the Frontline Gaming Network and FrontlineGaming.org, your one-stop shop for all tabletop goodies and tactical content. All right, let's jump into it. So, first and foremost, uh, I brought on Skari, Brandon, and Peter to help me out with this, uh, mostly because I have not won a Super Major um, and, uh, actually, I don't think Scary has it. Scary, have you won a Super Major? I have won Majors. I have not won a Super Major yet. Well, you're closer to win a, winning a Super Major than I am, for sure. Well, maybe not right now, uh, considering the circumstances. However, in the past, you've definitely come closer than I have. So, uh, I brought Peter and, well, Brandon and Scary. Peter's here just because he he's, he's awesome. And he oh, helps out with stats and stuff. <laughs> he's yeah. P- Peter and I are very much the uh, the color commentary. Yeah, yeah, one hundred. We love you both. Not the credibility. However, uh, 
these two have lots of tournament experience, and that's actually something that you do need to make good decisions in games of 40k. Uh, and as you guys will learn more as we talk about this subject, um, I think decision making in games of 40k and practice and experience is going to be the number one thing. So if you don't want to listen to this episode, but you still want to come away with some tidbit or fact for getting better at 40k, practice, practice, practice. That is going to be the number one thing. Now that I got that out of the way, let's talk about thinking ahead. So I come from a long line of gaming background um, with strategy games in particular. I play a lot of chess. Uh, I'm ranked pretty highly in chess, which is primarily where most of my information is going to come from. I also play Magic the Gathering. I tried to go competitive. I just never put the time into going competitive however i'm very very good at magic the gathering and also i'm not bad at warmer 40k i'm not the best um i would say that if i probably played a lot more tournaments i'd probably be a lot better than i am now uh although i don't know for sure and we probably never will know because i'm uh, pretty busy with my stuff at frontline gaming uh however i do understand this concept well i've done some research on it and a brandon and scary and peter can all also intelligent guys that can help out as well too so what we're talking about is thinking ahead and so in 40k, it's different than what you would expect in a card game or uh, a tabletop game like chess or checkers or, or whatever. Uh, there isn't a board with uh, with uh, positional moves and um, it's a lot more fluid. There's actually a lot more options in a game of 40k than there are in games of chess and the and other games as well, in games of magic, because you, you have an almost 360 degree range of movement. So you have so many different factors. You have all the different variations of dice rolling dice rolling. So if you're shooting, you know, twenty uh bolt guns at a single target, there's, you know, twenty uh exclamation point levels of potential variations right uh 20 sets of dice i I don't want to do the math there but there's a lot of different ways those dice can roll out now obviously you average out based on the law of averages and you can kind of predict where everything is going however not always and so in warmer 40k your decisions need to be constantly based off of random moving variables and there's a lot of them Right, even even the idea of sometimes I've lost games where I if I just moved a model two millimeters more to the right or to the left onto an objective or in the line of sight or out of line of sight or whatever have you, um, I would have I would have actually won that game or, or would have gone uh, that particular scenario would have gone my way. And so in even in the uh, moving in distances, you know we've said it in the, before on the podcast. You don't always want to move the full six inches or the full maximum movement range of your models. Uh, you know, there's a limit. You know, there's a number between zero and six inches that there's a lot of numbers in there that you can move to. So, um, so what, what I'm hearing Pablo, about here. <laughs> is there's a hell of a lot more uncertainty in 40k at multiple levels. Uncertainty in who your opponent might be. Uncertainty in what the terrain might be. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty in how die rolls will go. Um, so our goal is to come up with ways to reduce that uncertainty so that when you go up to the table, you're already confident because you know exactly what you need to do. Yes, 100%. Now we're assuming that you'll know who your opponent is, uh, and, and what basic, what army they're playing and all that. Um, so you don't need to plan ahead for that. I'm specifically talking about planning in an actual game however that is something we can loop around and talk about later because there's even more you can do pre-game uh that and post-game actually uh that can help you improve your decision making and 
think ahead in games of 40k. So, before um, to introduce uh, one of the topics I wanted to talk about in this to lead off with, and then we'll go ahead and open the floor to Brandon and Scary Peter, is the idea of sorry, my computer is doing some really it, right before the podcast the the computer crashed, and so it is um is not enjoying the heat. For those of you who don't know, I have a laptop and laptops do not do well with heat, especially if they're old and their video card sucks. So, um, so, uh, one of the things in chess, uh, that I was reading, one of the journals that I was reading, uh, revolved around the study of grandmasters and their performance versus casual players, uh, casual chess players and their performance in random scenarios. Uh, and so it revolved around making the best possible decision in any given scenario and Although in general, the grandmasters would choose the better optimal choices uh, given in these particular scenarios, it wasn't that big of a deal. It, the 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 common chess players would still, on average, choose the correct, make the correct move, or make the close to the correct move, and in for the most part, the games would play out similarly. Uh, but what they found was that the grandmasters, um, instead of there being uh, uh, a distance in the cognitive process, meaning that the grandmasters weren't smarter, um, because they really weren't smarter. Uh, they weren't particularly smarter than the common players. What they found was the grandmasters would go to a series of patterns and constantly make those games about them. So if you were a defensive player and you were a grandmaster, you would tend to go into a more defensive kind of strategy. You know, you might make a very specific move that in the chess world is very defensive. So I actually found that in 40k, we do the same thing. And top players actually have play styles and similar uh, patterns that they kind of fall into when they're playing the game that, that works for them. And so this goes to um, kind of my first rule or my first... Um, my, my first hint or tip for this, and that's playing to your comfort, finding your style and taking the game to a place where you know how to play, take it, making the game familiar to yourself. Uh, so if you know where, uh, if you know how tactical Marines are performing, you know what the ins and outs of the tactical Marine squad, not saying that tactical Marines are competitive. However, if, if tactical Marines are what you know, you know what they do at 18-inch uh, range, you know where they're going to be roughly on turn 6, on turn 5, uh, you know what their role is on the board, uh, you want to keep the your your level of game around those tactical Marines because that's what you are familiar with. And it's the same thing for styles. If you're a close combat player and you um, play a very cagey game, you don't enter close combat a lot, you might not be able to do the things that you want to do, uh, whereas if you tried to get into close combat. Uh, so, um, Skari, Brandon, and Peter, what, what are some examples of in-game patterns that you always kind of go back to um, that you kind of know that's uh, that's almost automatic or mechanical uh, when you're playing in, in your specific styles? And it could be anything. It could be unit choice. It could be uh, strategies, tactics, patterns, um, phases, whatever. So I think uh, it comes with, you know, you you could probably think of a person who you play with regularly who has a very particular play style. 
And when you play this person in your local game group, you know that they are going to be either hyper-aggressive or super defensive or they love using terrain or they have like this other unit that they just really love and they just beef it up and throw it down at your face or they love using deep strikers. Personally, I love using the movement phase a lot. I think it's one of the reasons uh, Drukhari uh, are such a good army for me is they're fast, they're maneuverable. And something I love, one of the game mechanics that works really well for me is zoning out the table, preventing deep strikers from getting to where they want to go. You know, there's this fantastic game that I played against Nick Nanavati, The Brown Magic. And uh, you know, I was able to film it as a bat rep. And it was his Gene Steel Cult back when he was playing Gene Steel Cult versus like my Venom Spam list. And it really showcased like how his style of play and my style of play kind of meshed in this really cool sort of scenario where I was zoning out the whole table and he had to really think outside of the box to really get into position to prevent me from basically stopping him from using his army the way he wanted to use it. And it was a very, very fun, uh, fun game. And that's the kind of thing that makes me comfortable is kind of forcing my opponent to out of their comfort zone in order to, for me to play my game and then for them to kind of have to think on the fly and usually make mistakes. Okay. What, what's an example of, um, so let's flip that. So what's an example of your opponent taking you out of your comfort level? Maybe a specific, a more specific example, um, maybe in a recent game you played or, or kind of a generality. Uh, recently, I've been testing a lot of uh, Coven uh, Drukhari armies, okay. and that's really been out of my comfort zone, has been playing armies that don't have any sort of long-range firepower. And I've played against a lot of Tau recently. And let's just say that Tau having range and maneuverability um, really killed Talos really well. <laughs> so it has definitely taken me out of my comfort zone to understand or to be in a position where you know, a, a Tau army can pick up six Talos in a single turn. And even though I have like 18 Talos bodies in a list, it takes them three turns to table me, right? So I've had to really sort of develop a thought process where I, I'm playing a big, tough Talos list very counterintuitively into that matchup because it's so uncomfortable to play normally and it doesn't work out the way you think it should work out with them making saves and stuff like that. Okay. Okay, great. Um, Brandon? Very similar for me. Um, even doing a practice game recently against um, a Chaos Knights list, it was a really cool shooting list he had with um, three triple multi-melta cannon knights and then seven lightning gun armagers. So a huge amount of firepower. And discussing the game in the beginning, he's like, okay, should I need, do I need to be aggressive or do I need to be defensive? And it occurred to me that I had actually built a very solid list to play the way that I want. And the way that I want to play is um, I want you to have to move towards me and me be on the defensive. I'm very comfortable fighting when I'm from behind and when my opponent has to put, make aggressive, risky moves to bring the game back in their favor or I'm going to win. So in this case, it was uh, I had just enough firepower that could hang out in the very back of my deployment zone so that the Meltonites, if they hung back, wouldn't be able to delete them. And because of abilities like Vengeance for Cadia, I would reliably remove a big knight each turn. So if he hung back, he would lose. So he had to close the distance and get in range with the Meltonites to these other vehicles in my back line. 
And that's where the rest of my list design came in, which was establish just enough during the design, the design phase to say, okay, you, ha you can't stay in the back of your deployment zone and win, you have to come towards me. And then build the rest of the list around making it so painful when you get closer to me that I still win. Um, so in that list, I had a couple of demolisher tanks that if he hung in his deployment zone at the very back, wouldn't be very useful. And he would just blow them up as they got closer across midfield. But because he had to come closer to me, those tanks could hide out a line of sight in my deployment zone somewhere, wait for him to come into range, and then pop out and shoot him first. So that's my normal game plan is force my opponent to make a first move so that I can pounce on them um, and start winning that grinding game. Now, to interfere with my plan, again, Tau is a great example because Tau's never going to come towards you unless they're using fusion suit commanders or some sort of deep striking crisis suit bomb. Um, and I know how to deal with that. So most of the time, the tower are like, well, I don't need to come closer to you. I have 36-inch range guns on everyone. I'm just going to stay in the front of my deployment zone and destroy your army. So having a plan for Tau really puts my normal plan on the back foot. And a lot of the time, I have to totally rearrange all of the uh, warlord traits, relics, abilities that I would normally use in a defensive game and still have a plan for that Tau scenario. Um, this episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. So all that said, I think it's really funny that Scary and I both thought of Tau as the army that throws us for a curve. Well, but it makes that sense. and I think there's someone called Siegler making them very popular still and uh, constantly adapting and, and really putting it out in the universe with people being able to watch games and, and ask them questions. And, it's, and people are following, following his lead. Oh, yeah. It's a terrifying army to deal with now. Oh, yeah. If, if you haven't played against those Farsight things, oh, man, they're so but, nasty. Yeah, the, with like the air-bursting squads and the, the CIB. Oh, it's... It's a pretty rough scene when you watch that getting played now. It's, it's definitely a top-tier army you need to be worried about. All right. So, Peter, um, I had two questions for you. Uh, yes. The first being, same question to Skari and Brandon, um, what's a kind of pattern you kind of put yourself into uh, when you play games, not even just 40K, but maybe Warmer Fantasy as well, and you played a lot of Warmer Fantasy battles back in the day, um, and also... Uh, I think the burning question I think uh, people have now is what are some patterns that top players have at the highest level? Because I know you've probably seen the most high level 40k play out of anyone. Uh, so, And there's got to be some patterns that maybe specific players have or players in general have that you've noticed um, that help them with their decision making and with thinking ahead. Sure. Um, in terms of my play style, it it definitely changes from uh, game to game or like army to army what I play. Um, in 40k, when I'm playing Blood Angels, I really have a hard time 
Um, and it's probably my worst army to play as because I want to be so aggressive. It's it's the theme of the army, right? Jump, uh, very powerful, deep striking units um, that move very fast. But the game is so killy that it's you have to be so careful about about being aggressive. Um, it's something that I I struggle with when I play, and it's it's easy to throw me off. Um, if you play the right army into me, where you make me make the decisions like Skari or Brandon would, I'm sure they would absolutely destroy me if I brought my Blood Angels to the table. Probably destroy me no matter what I brought to the table. But uh, that in particular, because I want to be so aggressive, and they're so good at at uh, blocking that, um, that it's something that I need to learn to hold back with. Um, when I play my custodies, it's a little different. Um, I'm more of a center board control uh, player, so my I have a a set plan where, based on terrain, etc., my goal is to get to the center of the board and then force you to move me, um, because custodies tend to be that like quote unquote immovable object. There are of course changes depending on who you're playing against. If they have ways to remove invulnerable saves, etc. Then, the, then of course the game plan has to change, but those are what my lists are kind of built around when I when I think or play custodies. Um, back in my Warhammer Fantasy battle days, I was definitely the um, the sit back um, arsehole that would force you to come to me. I I had a number of our of lists that uh, gave people little uh, fits because I loved playing skink skirmishers, um, and if you understood Warhammer Fantasy battle. Um, oh, I hated those things. <laughs> they were 50 points. I point... hated those things. Those are the Razorons or whatever. Oh, the Salamanders. Yeah, Razorons uh, were terrible, but Salamanders were amazing. Just so blowpipe between... chameleon skinks. Yeah, so between chameleon skinks, skink skirmishers, uh, regular skinks with uh, with the spear and shield, um, you could take a lot of 50 and 70 point units um, that were very malleable in terms of facing, and charging was always based off facing. So you could set up um, very easy walls, and uh, since fantasy, um, most armies were very close combat heavy, it was very easy to throw your opponent off um, by setting up charges that would force them to either run off the board or at best kill a 50-point unit, um, and then force them into a poor position where I could flank charge them with something that was more important or hit them with a, 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 like a very powerful spell from my slan. Usually I ran two. Um, or my Saurus Cowboys would come in and uh, and hit them on the flank and do a lot of damage. Like that was that was my fantasy style of play. It was very frustrating for opponents, but like it, it was all based around you come to me, I force you into poor positions, much like uh, how Scarry and Brandon are talking, and then and then I would capitalize. And the other thing I would always do is the uh, try to take advantage of the magic phase because that was something that required a lot of uh, calculation um, to get through the fantasy battle. Um, Magic phase had so many little um, struggles you would have to make if you wanted to play it appropriately, rather than just tossing six dice at a big spell, which a lot of people would try to do. There was little innuendo, little intrigue you could play to force your opponent's hand into dispelling things they didn't need to. And that was my favorite part, was to play those mind games. Um, Magic the Gathering, I'm a control player, etc., etc. Go on and on. Um, the, the second part of the question is the more important one, I think, for me. Um... I watch a lot of tape, like like you said, so I've seen a lot of tournaments, a lot of top tables. The one thing I will say, and I was talking about this off-air with Brandon and Skari, is that um, most top players, not all, there are some top players that are very aggressive, but most top players, especially in this edition, what we're seeing is this move towards forcing your opponent to make the decisions, to make the choices, um, so that they make mistakes. You see it pretty frequently um, if you watch Brandon Scarry 
Nick to a degree, though he can play very aggressive. Um, but more more often than not, he's trying to play KG, trying to force your opponent into making moves. Um, other examples that I've seen, Nick Rose is kind of 50-50 with it. You'll see he'll... Um, Siegler is well known for for uh, for forcing an opponent to play into his game plan. Um, yeah, so are like you the saying most... a, a defensive strategy is easier or more competitive? Or I would say a defensive strategy is more competitive, and I think it comes down to what I was talking about at the beginning of this. A lot of players want to be aggressive, right? It feels good to kill, uh, to remove models and do it as quickly as possible. And because of that, um, when you're playing at a higher level that kind of slow down the game mental chess approach um, is going to be more successful. That's my uh, kind of my theory based off of, you know, what I've seen a lot in a, at a lot of tables of play. Like when you watch two players that aren't uh, kind of on that, that, that equal footing, uh, what you'll often see is the player that's the more aggressive is the one that's going to lose. Um, an example, maybe if you look at uh, Capital City Blood Matthew last year, the finals, Jim Vessel versus Eric Marcoux, Eric's playing Knights, uh, Common thought is, I have to be super aggressive to kill all these plague bearers. He gets super aggressive and immediately suffers for it. Not sure he had another option, but um, like it was, it was very immediately obvious that he had made a mistake. Um, if you look at other games being played, it's generally the person that gets aggressive first is the person that's going to suffer the, the most losses. Um, and so with a very few exceptions, um, the kind of Raven Guard list we've recently seen, Almost uh, all players that I've seen being very successful in the last couple of years have been these kind of, I hate to say it, but cagier players that sit back and kind of trap your opponent into making decisions. Hmm. Now, uh, actually, um, I might have a theory uh, as to why a defensive playstyle is a little bit more effective from a decision-making and win perspective. And that's probably because they're limiting the decisions they make early on right so if you have like a richard siegler he doesn't do anything turn one and turn two he he's essentially making the same decision for his entire army he's also not updating his position which is uh something i want to talk about right after this it's the next topic um he's not uh, changing his position at all his position is staying the same the only thing that's changing is his opponent's position and the more you move your models, the more damage you deal, the more resources you use, uh, the more dynamic your position becomes and the more unpredictable it becomes. And so I can totally see, you know, uh, a player like uh, Brandon, Skari, Richard Siegler, you know, play a position they know, keep this position that they know, you know, it might even be a very defensive position keep the board state and the pattern that they know and then just have their opponent overextend or make one incorrect play or um um maybe wrong move that costs them a bit of ground or possibly even the game so uh that definitely goes into that kind of theory of positions and uh thinking ahead they're just doing it in a more conservative way uh okay so the next thing i want to talk about which i did allude to a little bit earlier and that's the idea of positions, right? So we talked about kind of tactical play and patterns and something that's very holistic. Uh, but what I want to talk about specifically positions is uh, the idea of memory retention and memorization. And so if you look at, you know, those chess grandmasters, the top magic players, the top 40k players, uh, they have the same access that you do to the game. They, they have, you know, they're, they're, there's luck involved that they can't predict 
they have the same resource access that you have. Um, they have the same models. They're not using superior, you know, bolt guns that are damaged too, or well, they might be, but you have access to those too, I promise. Uh, unless you're not a Space Marine player. But the point is, is that they have access to the same resources you do. However, even in mirror matches, these the better players do tend to outperform the uh, the lower skilled player in in all of these games and it's not because you know like like uh they're rain man right they're not using this high intelligence to outthink you and out you know um memorize all these different scenarios and beat you uh what they're doing is they're they're um putting very specific positions to memory and retaining memory in that way and that's what this chess journal and that's what some of the research i've done is kind of concluded uh is that if you want the best the best way seems to be to retain memory and to do perform well these games is to memorize specific positions and that sticks to your memory better so what i mean by that is like for example in warmer 40k if you are playing itc a very specific itc mission and a very specific deployment uh and a very specific army you might deploy the same way every single time a la um juice if you remember steven four a couple years ago i think it's been a couple years now he was dominating with an astro militarum army in eighth edition and one thing that he went went on record on this podcast and his podcast um was that he would deploy the same every single time it was the same deployment every single game didn't matter who the opponent was and if you remember back then uh eighth edition had this thing where there was alternating deployment so there was kind of this game where you would just pass the clock back and forth and alternate deployment and juice would literally just tell his opponent like hey hey man you can put the clock on me i don't care my deployment's going to be the exact same every single time i'm just going to start deploying so we don't do this alternating deployment thing and so uh what that kind of taught me was that juice was putting himself in this very specific position that he had already memorized it was already optimized to his play style this position and then from there once you have that optimized position it's not too hard to kind of figure out other positions for example if you have your guardsmen and a uh, a line and a bubble wrap around you know where those guardsmen are going to be in general in in a specific itc mission if you itc mission or other mission where an objective is uh static and where you know it's going to be every single time so for instance if you have an objective on the middle of the board you're playing dawn of war deployment you know you're always going to be 12 inches away from the center of that objective 12 inches away from that objective so units that move 12 inches are always going to if you move them maximum distance always going to be 12 inches boom right there in the middle of the board and that's going to happen every single time. And so if you do that every single game, you're going to find out how scenarios play out. So what happens if I move 12 inches up against a Raven Guard army? What happens if I move 12 inches up against Tau? If I move 12 inches up against Knights, etc., etc., etc.? Because you're always playing those that same position against a variety of opponents, you're going to memorize those scenarios and perform better. So yeah, I really actually like that idea. The thing I'll add to that is if you're unfamiliar with the concept or you haven't tried it before, take your most common scenario and memorize a deployment for it mm-hmm. uh, that isn't super terrain dependent. Um, so, for example, if you're worried about Tau, memorize a deployment that you'd always deploy against Tau that way and then keep deploying that way. Um, and in the future, um, you can always try and add more canned deployment ideas. So, oh, I'm playing 
horde chaos with Alpha Legion. Um, I'm going to deploy this way, not the same way I'd deploy against Tau. So, but but the same idea applies in that before you even step to the table, you want to have a plan for how your army is going to look on the table versus whatever you're playing against. Right, and and you might be wondering, you might be wondering, well, Pablo. That that helps me, but how does that help me see towards the end of the game? There's all these different scenarios where all these different, uh, you know, possible outcomes can happen. How am I how am I supposed to predict turn six from you know uh, the same deployment I use every time? Well, this is where position memorization comes in handy. If you memorize the first turn, that first position, and then if you memorize what you're going to do in response to your opponent moving. Right, you've already thought two turns ahead. You've you might you've already taught technically three turns ahead because you've deployment, right? So if you deploy, move up turn one, and then if you if you memorize a position against a specific army, for example, if you're playing guard against Raven Guard, Space Marine Raven Guard, uh, and that's a matchup you've played multiple times, turn two you should already know roughly what your opponent's capable of. Raven Guard armies won't have a ton of most armies won't have a ton of variation on turn two in uh, options. It, most people do the same thing on this very specific mission. That's the whole point of this. If they do something off the wall and crazy and unpredictable, like fine, whatever. Hopefully hopefully you'll be able to work it out and that you'll be able to put that position in for later. But if we're talking generalities, by turn two, you should be able to predict mostly what your opponent is going to be doing. And I'm, I'm putting that in your memory now so that we can talk about it later because that's a, a third thing that a patron brought up that i want to bring up too but back to this point so you've already thought two turns ahead just by doing that something right? that's also important is um if you want to know what to do or have feeling of what to do when you're in turn five and turn six is play until turn five and turn six yep a lot of times i see i see people play one two turns that's great to get like muscle memory down for deployment positioning but at the end of the day, a lot of competitive players will win the game on that sixth turn because they have limited resources, they have been in that situation before, and they know how to use those resources to get maximum amount of points to win a game. And a lot of the times that'll set apart somebody who has that experience, will know how to do it, whereas other people get anxious or frustrated or they sort of like get into fight or flight response because they've just not been in that situation before. Yeah. Yeah. On top of that, I'll say a really good player is going to win the game before they even get to the table. And what I mean by that is um, I'll give you guys an example. So the game that was streamed between myself and Alex Harrison for LVO 2018. Um, no, that was LVO 2019. Wow. Yeah. Um, I had a plan going into that game. And part of the reason I had a plan was that there was a 30-minute break between rounds um, for tournament reasons. And I knew even the day before that I was likely to be playing this list and how scary it was. Um, and there were a lot of decisions that I made going into that game where I was like, really, his list gives me no option, no path, except this one. If I try any other approach, his list is way more tailored to my list than mine is to his and I'm just gonna lose. So I knew because I had been practicing with this army for so long, approximately what his army was capable of destroying if it went first and how to mitigate some of the damage with deployment and realized that in a straight up race, which is what his list was going to be because it's a flyer spam list. Um, for those who aren't aware, 
It was a seven Eldar flyer list with scatter laser jet bikes, the um, Cat Lady, and some miscellaneous infantry versus a Castellan Guard Brigade uh, with some Hellhounds, a couple Wyverns, and 90 Guardsmen, and sorry, 80 Guardsmen in Catachans and nine Bulgrins. Um, but I knew that my Castellan was going to follow those flyers and that after the Castellan went away, I wouldn't have any firepower nearly enough to deal with his flyers before his flyers destroyed everything that could possibly hurt them. So, great. I just assumed that was going to happen, planned accordingly, and played that game out knowing that the thing that was going to win me that game was my infantry. Um, so even before deployment, I was like, I don't mind if I go second because it'll allow me to score objectives with my infantry because his flyers um, will definitely destroy all my infantry off objectives if he's going second. And number one. Number two, I accepted that I was going to lose the shooting phase. And number three, I played to still have models left on the board turn six, which is exactly what happened. I had a handful of guardsmen turn six that were just enough to get me the points to win the game. So it's nice if, if you're saying, yeah, on turn six, I was winning that game. But ideally, you know your army well enough so that all these random die rolls and random maps and random deployments and abilities, you're like, okay, I am expecting this unit to die on this turn. I'm expecting this unit to die on that turn. I'm expecting my opponent to win the shooting phase. I'm expecting to win the assault phase. I'm expecting to score more objectives. Here's my path to victory. And if you have that plan in place and you understand yours and your opponent's army, I don't see how you can lose in 95% of scenarios. So that's the goal is to understand all of this randomness well enough and practice it well enough that by the time you start putting models down, you already know how the game's going to go. Hmm. I agree. And actually, one one uh, kind of practice tip that I I gleaned from this this chess study that I I, I researched, uh, it, it actually ties in perfectly with what you said, Brandon. Um, is that as the as these players were presented with this these scenarios, essentially what the study was is the uh, players were presented with scenarios specifically saying that that you had you had to get checkmate here's this specific position, here's a specific scenario, get checkmate, and then record your game and come back to us and give it back to us. And what they found was, was that there were almost no discrepancies in the decisions between grandmasters and casual lesser players in the beginning and then towards the end. Meaning that the first few moves all the players were making were basically the same, and also the checkmates were almost identical as well. The checkmates, there were less discrepancies, uh, meaning that the players the 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 players were at a grandmaster level or making grandmaster decisions um and they knew how to they knew what the outcome was going to be they knew what their win condition was uh where the discrepancies were largest were the middle of the the middle of the uh, moves were basically the grandmasters were making more efficient better decisions and getting to that checkmate faster and uh making you know just kind of these redundant patterns based off of multiple scenarios meaning that one grandmaster would make would kind of lead to the same redundant strategy and do the same make the same moves even across different scenarios which is that redundancy i was talking about earlier however the when they asked the grandmasters what they did differently obviously because you want to know what what a grandmaster is doing um at, at that high level uh to get to get that more efficient 
outcome, uh, the grandmasters were actually uh, visually evaluating and then and internally representing moves and then acting on that. And um, I'm sorry, I, I completely mixed that up. They were they were uh, repre- uh, mentally representing the game in their heads. So they were playing the uh, representation of the game in their head with all the possible outcomes, but then they would reinforce that with visual evaluations and visually representing the moves on a board. And so for practice, to bring it all back, if you really want to practice this very specific thing, you don't just want to play till turn six. You want to think of your theoretical position, think of the theoretical moves, and then visually implement them, put them into action. So if you want to know what happens if your Sanguinary Guard charge a Chaos Rampager Knight, Displayer Knight, or if you move 20 Guardsmen onto this objective instead of 10, you have to actually... Uh, if you want to really put it com- commit it to memory, you should visually act on it and play it out. And so where I actually think um, you could really do well with this is uh, if you have another player who is like-minded, a friend, maybe on Tabletop Simulator or otherwise in the garage, uh, and you play out games, when you play the game out, uh, go back one turn after you make your decisions and kind of talk about what the most optimal position is for both players. Right, so uh, play your turn. Don't do an entire turn. I think that might be a little overwhelming. And I think that's kind of the big uh, hurdle that people have when they want to practice and get better is, oh shit, I have to play an entire game of Warhammer 40k, or even sometimes an entire entire couple of turns. I know I personally don't always have time to play three or two entire turns of Warhammer 40k to get better. But what I can do is I can watch a game, you know, like Jim Vessel playing you know, some other player, some really good player, um, get that off Twitch or off YouTube or whatever, uh, get a very specific position that I am familiar with that they're playing in, and then go through the decisions and go through the potential choices with a friend that they could have made. So Jim Vessel, I could have, he could have moved his, his uh, Plague Bearers here on turn three, but he didn't. So I'm going to put my Plague Bearers here on turn three instead and see how it plays out. My opponent or my friend who's also practicing is going to react to that and then we're going to swap. So uh, keep that in mind. I know that was basically a really long-witted way of saying you should practice very specific scenarios, but I felt like Yeah, that practice very deliberately. And yeah, even you... to add what, what Pablo is saying is, uh, in my mind, you don't even need to play any turns. You can just have you and your friend put models on the table in TTS and then have a five-minute discussion about, okay, you're going first. Here's how I think your first turn will go. And if you're not sure, just roll some practice dice. Be like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to shoot my battle cannon at your tank. Let's see what happens. Oh, no, your tank's way tougher than I expected. I should have put way more firepower into that just in case it didn't work out. And you'll learn so many things just by theorizing for a few minutes that you might not have done in a real game, because a real game, you're just going to start moving models right away. But in deliberate practice, take a step back and discuss things with your opponent and how you think the game's going to go. And if you want, play it out at that point. Otherwise, if you've come to some huge revelation, you might go back and change your lists. You might go back and change deployments and try again. Um, So it's not a real game of 40K, but that deliberate practice can give you the insight that you're missing. Yeah, I would add, um, when you're playing for fun games with friends, another thing to do, um, is let things happen that didn't happen. Um, so if you're playing against an opponent and um, they fail a three-inch charge, if you don't care about the winner, if there's no money on the table, let them do it anyway just to see what would have happened for them, uh, especially if you have all the time in the world, because this is the stuff that you need to build up 
um, conscious competence, which is basically what we're talking about now, um, is this concept of um, you know what's going to happen because you've experienced it before. And you hopefully get to a point, uh, like we were talking about at the beginning, uh, when it comes to you know repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again, where you build up unconscious competence, where you just do it without even thinking. Um, and that's kind of like the end goal in any kind of game um, that requires this kind of level of thought is you want to be able to do as much as possible without having to think it through because you've experienced it over and over and over again. Um, so when you're playing that practice game with a friend and you fail your four inch charge or you roll six ones when on average you should have done something different, feel free to say, hey, do you mind if I just see what would have happened and we'll keep playing afterwards? Because like the point of that is to see, you know, in a normal scenario, what would have occurred just so that you can experience it, understand where your models would have ended up. And that will help you develop further when you're playing like a real game in a tournament that you'll know, okay, well, if I fail this charge, this is what I'm going to need to do because you've played out that you know, normal aspect. But then if I make the charge, this is exactly what's going to happen. And you can, it's going to save you time on your clock. It's going to do a lot to benefit you in the overall. Um, one thing I'll say that we haven't talked a little bit about, well, is I'll just mention there's a book um, it was brought up to me about two, three years ago now, back when I played um, the Game of Thrones card game competitively, and it's a really awesome read. I've seen a lot of people talk to me about it uh, since, uh, in re reference to 40k, etc. It's called um, Playing to Win by David Serlin. I highly recommend that for anybody that's trying to get competitive in any game. It talks a lot about what we're talking about here and goes even uh, more in depth. It's an ex excellent read. Uh, good, good recommendation, Peter. Yep. One more time for those who missed it. Playing to win. Playing to it win is. by David Serwin. I believe it's the the subtitle is like how to become a champion. It's on my bookshelf here somewhere. Anyway, it's a great read. Um, there's a lot of stuff you can apply to 40k when it comes to how to chase metas versus not chasing a meta, and when you reach a level where it's not the meta that's important, but who you're playing against. Uh, things like that. Stuff that we've kind of touched on or been adjacent to through this whole conversation and in the past. It's just a really, really good book to read. Hmm. All right. So, uh, Scar, actually, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> did you want to? Did you want to add anything else to this? No, I think everybody was really adding in. Like, I didn't have to rehash stuff that's already like said. You know, perfect. I think. Um, I think. You know, it's just about building those strategies and really kind of practicing. Hmm. All right. Now, the one, the final thing I wanted to discuss before we jumped into the patron questions um, was the idea of stopping your opponent from doing what they want to do so it, it's one thing to memorize your own patterns and to develop those and act on them and think ahead and create proper decision making for yourself it's another to know what your opponent has to do to make their proper decision making too and that's also what goes into thinking ahead on turns you, you're not just thinking you know ahead on your own turns you also have to think about what your opponent's going to do to think ahead towards the end of the game and so uh one of the cool things uh, in chess is that when you have a very specific position memorized uh and you know your meta you know your kind of like your elo rating like if you're grandmaster intermediate master etc cetera, etc cetera, uh there's enough resources to know for you to be able to predict what your opponent's going to be doing for the first 20 to 25 moves. And when they don't do that, they, they have these things called variations that you memorize as well, um, where maybe one or two moves are 
you know, vary the game a little bit, but the ultimate goal is still the same in very specific openings. Uh, Warhammer 40k doesn't have a huge database of openings and positions and moves, so it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, you know, there's not, for for instance, there's more than just two factions. Um, however, w- one thing you can do is you can, when the patterns, the patterns that you make and the patterns that you establish, uh, make them patterns that your opponent has to react to in very specific ways so uh this is actually one of the reasons why i think raven guard are really powerful a raven guard uh a specific raven guard list that i'm thinking about is one with assault centurions uh eliminators of some sort uh basically the lists that you see uh alpha striking very well with um that also have a lot of really tough uh, bodies that aren't really an option you want to deal with uh in the the beginning of the game when your position or your board hasn't developed right so with raven guard your your opponents are reacting very specifically to your list they're not reacting to your position they're defending their leaders probably hiding out somewhere they're bubble wrapping uh they're essentially um are forced to play very defensively it's actually one of the reasons why i think raven guard are are uh, definitely need to be nerfed because they, they are very centralizing. Uh, Blood Angels were the same way and they are now as well, but they were the same way in the beginning of the edition. Um, and that, that's why Alpha Strikes are really bad for the game because it forces everyone to kind of play a very specific way, which in turn makes it easier for the Raven Guard and the Blood Angels and the Alpha Strike players to uh, play the same game every time, right? Because their opponents are starting to do the same things every single game. They're they're falling into these habits. So when you're developing a position, you want your you want to know how your opponent is going to react to it. So if you pick a very passive position, it gives your opponent more options for flexibility. So uh one thing I love about Brandon in particular is he's very aggressive with his infantry. He's not he, he's kind of I don't want to call Brandon like a gunline player because he's not, and he is obviously very tactically fluid. But he he doesn't he doesn't fight you with his whole army. Like Brandon's Brandon's not a very aggressive in your face. Like every every uh, unit isn't designed to like smash face and kill you and get up the board and disrupt your opponent. He has very specific units with roles to do that. However, one thing Brandon does is he puts his guard up and in your face and forces you to react to them versus other guard players that I see that don't do that and tend to gunline and pillow fort, uh, which, which basically makes your game very easy when you play them because you know by turn five or turn six, those guardsmen, because they're not moving up the board, they're not affecting the way you move up the board. So you're able to kind of predict what you want to do and uh, kind of progress your, your game plan then. So, uh, Having said that, to just kind of recap, um, one thing I think you can do for sure is when you pick a position that you want to practice and you want to kind of fall back on as your bread and butter, make sure it's one that has uh, enough aggressiveness or enough uh, pressure on your opponent, puts enough pressure on your opponent to have them react to it. So, thoughts? Uh, There's a lot to take in. I definitely agreed with the Raven Guard point. Um, it's become a topic of interest in our guard group that is private um, because it is particularly over-centralizing. Um, but how could I summarize the point you're trying to make with the way I was using guard? 
So uh, the the way I the way I see you use guard is is your depending on obviously depends on the meta and the list. However, uh, one thing I, I I love about the way you play your guard is your infantry are almost like your your like bread and butter main uh, disruption unit, even though they're just like dudes. They're like T three bodies that die super fast, and and they do a lot. It's because they do a lot for you. They're very mobile. Um, you don't you're very unpredictable with them. They can do a lot for you, uh, and so if you don't, if you if you kind of fall into a, a guard gun line mindset, they're not doing as much for your uh, opponent. They're not doing as much to your opponent, meaning making your opponent more unpredictable. So if, for instance, if you have thirty Katachan moving into the center of the board, holding a, a very important objective, or maybe creating space for your Bulgrin to go in there and charge from uh, a ruin or something like that. Uh, it it forces your opponent to react to that versus uh, not doing that and your opponent being able to decide whether they want to move up the middle of the board, go around, you know, things like that. So you want to create uh, positions that your opponent have to has to react to and you want to threaten either their army or the a board control um, that they, they have to deal with. Okay, yeah. Um, I'll agree with all that. Uh, there's a couple points there to make more specifically. One is, um, yes, it's very nice to be able to deploy your entire army the same way every time, but you're not going to be able to play it the same way every time. Not unless you're going super skew and building list that's always defensive or always offensive. And then you're going to run into the perfect counter. What, like your unstoppable force is going to hit an immovable object and you're going to lose. So there has to be some balance to the list. So if you're going to play multiple ways, have a different plan for your different units for those scenarios. So yeah, Guardsmen can definitely hold back and pour some fire into your opponent if you need them to. But they can also move forward and take objectives or screen for you. And sometimes you don't even need them to move out at all. There's games where I haven't moved guardsmen into the midfield until the late game because of how my opponent's list works. So it really just depends on who you're playing and have different roles for the same units in mind for those different scenarios. So it's building from, I'm always going to deploy my army the same way to maybe I'll deploy it slightly differently for these scenarios to depending on what my plan is, different units can perform different roles when I need them to. So maybe my guardsmen are melee units this game. Uh, instead of shooting, I, I've had games where the guardsmen literally never fired their weapons. They only were in bayonet range. Yeah, and well, they move that was the right call. Or block or screen or, you know, and it's something that's, it's, it, you know, taking a bit of a, of like a flip on, on, or adding into that, but flipping it in a way is, yeah, be very, careful to fall into the trap of of basically seeing a situation happen the exact same way every single time because there's always variables involved and i find that one of the biggest traps that a 40k player can get into is get themselves in this in, in a situation or a scenario and then expect it to play out exactly the same way if they haven't explored every single other option like Brandon was saying, using units in a way that's completely not what they're normally used at. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of your example game, Scary, where you're talking about using your Venom Spam list in a very aggressive way when you needed to simply overwhelm your opponent with the number of vehicle hulls you had and then tie up all their stuff with skirmishers. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that, that's actually a really good point, Scari. Uh, everything we're talking about, uh, when we say decision-making, when we say uh, patterns, or when I say it, or um, we're not talking about uh, the same kind of predictable stuff, or, or we're not telling you to get into a habit and then develop it. You have to pick the right, you have to make the right habit. You have to pick the right decision for the right scenario. So it, it's basically all, all the game is, is just a series of decisions that you have. And there's hopefully a path of decision-making that you can take that leads to victory. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, and you need to find that, that perfect decision-making path that leads to your win condition. And it leads to the outcome that you want, the outcome that you desire. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as moving, you know, uh, this this venom throw unit up to a specific objective and then leaving it there. That's very easy to predict. Just takes you know four or five or x amount of turns um, to get them to that objective. Uh, and then sometimes it's a lot more complicated, like a guard blob in the middle of the board that can simultaneously shoot, charge, move, block, steal objectives. Uh, you know rally behind a character fall back that that has a lot more options and so um you uh what brandon was saying i think that actually makes perfect sense is that you do want very specific micro scenarios for each of your units in your overarching schemes right so if you have if you're deploying you find a deployment that works for you on itc scenario five against blood angels right you you, you have that you're down you have that deployment you're good to go now you want to start looking towards the specific scenarios your individual uh, units are going to be where where your hive guard going to go what are they going to prioritize shooting what do they want to prioritize shooting uh do what what specific parts of the board do they want do you want them to cover you know et cetera et cetera um think about think about those kind of scenarios once you have your your baseline you know uh position and that can happen in anything uh if you have the same um one, one thing that i found myself playing personally was uh turn five and turn six i always found myself in kind of the same boat with my old uh with my old space brain list that was basically all my stuff was dead and all i had was scouts like just scouts and and characters on the board every single game they were always kind of in the same positions scattered on usually two to three objectives uh one character probably was either close to death and threatening my opponent an opponent's unit another character was most definitely usually it was a psyker uh was most definitely always in my deployment zone chilling or closer near the middle of the board um chilling on an objective uh, so what I did to change that list and actually make it better, this is one of my performances, one of my better performances at the Broadside Bash, uh, where I went um, X and 1 and top 8ed, was uh, I changed my my scouts from regular bolter scouts to bolt pistol chainsword scouts so that they could, so that they could pressure um, basically the outside of my opponent's board. And it worked out really well for me. So... Uh, you know, just think about things like that. Think about the roles that your units are, are uh, the roles that units have, and also where they are at the end of the game. And that's that's also um, <clears throat> one other thing that helped me was finding, thinking about a unit, and then imagining where it is on turn six. Is it dead? Is it alive? Where is it if it is alive? Um, what is what should it have killed? Um, what would you have liked it to have killed? Et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think what we're what we're talking about here is like a gradual evolution in your gameplay, right? We talked earlier at the beginning about, you know, getting to in a, this specific scenario, I'm going to do this when and and uh, and then you build off that. Well, that didn't work this time, so I know that now I need to modify it to this. And you start to think ahead uh, when it comes to your units, when it comes to your what your opponent's doing, and you'll eventually develop game plans that will work in most scenarios. And then your keys is, is your keys are going to be how do I develop to do this against better players? So you start playing against better players, you let them kick the crap out of you, teach you something new because you made a mistake because you didn't think about a particular uh, maneuver, and then you take that, you go play against your buddy down the street. Um, who lives in his like his uh, garage, and you force him to make those mistakes so that you can capitalize, and you learn from that, and you keep developing, and that is how you're going to to be able to think ahead more and more efficiently because you've just experienced it more more often, you've modified, and then you've seen like the bigger picture over and over and over again. You know, Peter, that was a very succinct and accurate analysis of basically the entire episode so ignore everything we just said peter said it all that was great but obviously don't do that (laughs) all right (laughs) obviously listen to the first 40 minutes yes he swoops in like a falcon should Mm. all right so thank you for that summary peter was there anything else that any of the three of you wanted to add uh before we kind of wrap up the show I guess the only thing I would say before we get to questions is um, take the time to watch top players when they play casual games. And it doesn't just have to be 40k. You can see this in chess if you watch like Magnus Carlsen or he's probably the most obvious for anybody that kind of follows. (laughs) Um, Or if you want to follow um, uh, Caruana. Yeah. Or like Anish Giri, things like that. Oh my gosh. You know chess players. I do. Uh, You can watch them play. And uh, when they're playing casually on like chess 24 or anything like that, watch them talk through every move. Because it 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 uh, you'll see it too from guy like Nick Nanavati does it all the time. Um, Sean Naden does it generally when he's on his back foot, but still he'll he'll do it. Um, oh, I do it in competitive games. Yeah, but they talk through, <laughs> like, and they talk through everything. Like if if you watch, I do it as well, by the way. And also when I play John Lennon, he does it as well. Like yeah. it's it's like a thing that we do is like to process that information. And but they talk through everything, right? So you'll yeah. see like um, an example. To give one that you can uh, look up is if you check out Charity Hammer, uh, Nick Nonavati versus Danny McDevitt in the tournament. Um, I think it's all recorded. Uh, Nick, uh, like right from deployment, starts talking through every one of Danny's moves and his own. For like the first two rounds, it's, okay, you put those guys there. They are capable of doing this, this, and this. I'll probably lose this many models if I put my guys here. And he's talking through that while he's doing things. Um, that's kind of the level you want to eventually be able to get to. But the reason why he's able to do that is because he's done it a hundred times, right? It's the same with guys like Magnus Carlsen, um, Geary, etc. When you watch them on Chess 24 playing through a game, they'll sit there and they'll be like, okay, he's probably going to go D8. Or maybe he'll go this way. And then if he does that, I'm going to do this. If he does this, I'm going to do that. Plays it all out. And then they very rarely get caught off guard because they've played thousands and thousands of games. Yeah. And it's actually hilarious when they do get caught off guard because the the move will happen and one of two things will 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 occur. They'll look at the board and say that man's an idiot, um, uh, which is kind of common for Carlson. Or he'll be, or they'll just be like, <laughs> I've lost. Like they immediately. Um, a good example. Um, 
where they don't talk it through because of course it doesn't happen in like tournament games. There's only chess twenty four. If you watch like the chess blitz twenty nineteen um, in India, Carlson versus Indit, where turn five Carlson asks for the draw because Indit made a move and he was like, I can't think of any uh, any way. Like he moved through the next like six moves and was like, There's no way I can beat you. And he's just like, I'll uh, do you want to draw? And the guy's like, Yeah, sure. Because like both of them have come had come to a point where they were in a, a circumstance that they didn't like they either every outcome was a draw or was so um such an unknown to them that they didn't want to continue the game. Those are the kind of things you want to be able to get to. Um you can see it with Magic the Gathering if you watch um I believe like uh, Kelsey Ito brought up uh in our Patreon chat, um LSV, Louis Scott Vargas. Um, you'll see like day nine do it or Jeff Hoogland will be playing through a game and they'll be like, well, I'm going to do this. He probably has this in hand because, you know, they've gotten to the point where they played enough games against X meta list where they know what the next play is going to be. And it's a good thing to get into, even if you're not that good, because what it will do is when you get surprised, you, uh, (laughs) you'll you'll become so used to it, um, that you'll learn something out of it. I do it with guys out here all the time when I play. Um, sometimes it actually has a, a positive effect on your game because you'll throw them off their game, uh, which is not ne- never my intent, but I know some people probably do, where you go, okay, I'm going to move my guys here. When I do that, you're probably going to take these guys out and kill them, but I think it's worth it to do that. And then you get these guys that will sometimes they'll see you do that, and they'll be like, well, then I'm not going to do it, even though it's clearly, at least in your mind, the best option. Um, and you can throw people completely off their game just by, like, blurting out what their strategy is going to be. Um, well, but now on the other I don't hand, want to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So then they go like, okay, well, I'm going to go over here. And then you're like, well, then you just lost. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so Peter, uh, another cool thing about the phenomenon you're describing is also if you, if you see these players, you start to recognize the very specific uh, scenarios yourself too, right? So if you know, exactly. like, if you know your opponent's got three mana or five mana up, two of it's blue, you've got a dominant board state and you're playing limited Ikora, they've probably got a voracious great shark in their hand. They're waiting to kill you and eat you. That was yeah. a, a joke for all you magic people. But uh, basically, you start to recognize patterns in top-level play, too. Um, that's why uh, the armchair, armchair quarterbacks in the NFL, that's actually why they do a pretty good job of uh, predicting games and figuring out. That's why they've got a high football IQ. It's because they watch so much professional-level football and all that analysis that they're able to take scenarios and predict outcomes. Um so just do the same thing with Warmer 40k. Uh, you find some a really good player who plays your faction, who plays units that you're used to seeing, that you're used to playing with, and then you watch how they react to very specific uh, scenarios and very specific positions. It's all great. Also, a uh, quick point of order, Peter. Uh, Magnus Carlsen drew in it on turn five. He offered the draw because he really needed to use the restroom. I thought that was a, a different diuretic game. episode. I, I might be. They might be. I might be the because I'm confused on that as well too. It might be the same player in a different blitz tournament, but the same kind of scenario because it was both in both cases. I think it was a young Indian guy, young yes. Indian grandmaster. Yes. But but um, in both cases. Uh, Carlson was like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna draw for sure." Like yeah. with the di- with the with the, when he had to excuse himself to use the restroom, the player was like, "Okay, you're Magnus Carlson. I'll let you go." But I probably could have won. And then Carlson came back and was like, "No, no, this, 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 we draw." And he's like, "Oh, right, anyways, all right, uh, enough, enough uh, non forty k tangents. Let's go ahead and it jump into. It was, it, was, it was good. It was adjacent. It was fine. It was also chapter tactics. It wouldn't Checkmate. be chapter tactics without." <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> without uh, uh, going into the weeds every now and then getting pulled back in. It's a good all, weed. It's a dandelion. All right. So, if you're unfamiliar with the way episodes go, at the end of every episode, we open the floor to the patrons, where we answer questions live on at the end of every episode that they have. It can be about the topic on hand, it could be about anything, uh, any and all things we've asked, certainly asked and answered some ridiculous questions. All right. So, the first patron question goes out to uh, Mr. Patron Kelsey. Uh, how do you factor an assumed player skill into your planning out your turns? Do you assume every opponent will play optimally and play trying to get the highest win percentage possible? Or do you lay traps for players that you feel are more susceptible to them, like a distraction carnivix, etc.? Uh, I see that Brandon already answered this in the Facebook chat. So, would you like to take it away, Brandon? Uh, I'm happy to. So, um just to add to what I've already said in chat, um, you definitely want to plan for people to make the best moves. And I know that depending on personal play style, you might like to lay traps for suboptimal moves. Depending on the play style of your opponents, you might say, oh, I've played Frank before and he's really aggressive. So I'm just going to lay this trap so that when Frank's aggressive, I win. And that's totally fine. Or you could say, well, if Frank knew what he was doing, he would play defensively, and that would win him the game. So I'm going to play as if he's going to play defensively, but also plan for him to be aggressive. And that's probably my preferred approach, which is assume they're going to make the right move, but don't just open yourself up so if they make a suboptimal move, they might actually win anyway. I have an escape, um, right? Yeah. I have a backdoor. Because um, usually it's, oh, you did something suboptimal, I'll just win. 90% of the time, or maybe 95% of the time, and it's okay to leave the door open to a 5% move that's super risky where your opponent has to make a boxcar's charge and get off a of psychic power in order to win because 95% of the time they won't. Well, one thing I like to do is when I'm in those kind of situations, not necessarily against a, a player who's, um, if this is even possible, worse than me, uh, but uh, kind of more casual situation where I, I don't really care what the outcome is and the game is for more for learning, um, which is what I would kind of classify that kind of scenario as, uh, I tend to limit test when I, in those situations. So what I mean by limit testing is uh, I'll either, if it's League of Legends, I'll play a champion I'm unfamiliar with. If it's a warmer 40k, I'll, I'll take a unit that uh, maybe is underperforming my army or that I'm kind of iffy about, and I'll try and put them in aggressive scenarios to succeed. So if they're like aggressors, I'll advance them up the board instead of moving them up slowly. Um, you know, hopefully they don't die, see what kind of firepower they can take, see how my opponents react to them, see what their threat levels are, what their perceived threat levels are uh that their opponent perceives them as just etc etc so uh limit testing is something that's really good if you want to uh get better at things that you're unfamiliar with right uh because you're you're essentially practicing you know fun things or maybe not necessarily fun things but um things that that you're not you don't normally practice or things that aren't your bread and butter uh and the the goal would be to make them better right uh, do you do? I do that in all the games I play. Um, all right. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, how does this comes from Patreon? Nick, how much does different mission format impact thinking ahead and list building? I events or games that last five turns instead of six. Also, how did you celebrate May the fourth? All right, Nick. Um, so first question. Uh, how does how does do different do mission formats impact your decision making? Or have there been any mission formats in the past? that have made it easier or harder for you to kind of predict the outcome in decision-making or or not? 
This is for anyone to answer. I guess I'll start here. Number one, will uh, mission format um, change my decision making? 100%. Like if you're playing with an ITC mentality when you're playing WTC missions, it's a different ball game. So you have to understand the capacity of your list within the different formats. And will that impact it on the table? Yes. Yes, it's, it will. It definitely does. It'll and impact can, it before the table. Yeah. It, so before you, when you, Brandon, you're right. You know, you build a list, you're looking at, well, is it, is it going to be more about war control? Do I have to kill stuff? What sort of units in my army can achieve secondary objectives or maelstrom cards or whatever the, the format is, you're going to be, you're, it's going to kind of shape the way that you go into the event in the first place. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, nothing to add. The yeah, end. this is great. Perfect. Also, uh, how did Love we it. all celebrate May the 4th, Star Wars Day? I watched, uh, finally, so so I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. However, do not not scream. I know one of you is going to scream at your, your various, whatever you're listening on. Uh, I have not seen uh, Clone Wars. <laughs> uh, Seriously? Yes. None of it? Like, none, none of it. it. None of it. So None. zero. Yes. So everyone That's is going. This everyone is going right crazy. Now, Everyone's going crazy about. No, I saw the um the Samurai Jack Clone Wars. I saw those, but the the miniseries or that was cool. <laughs> but like I I never I never got into the Clone Wars itself, um just for various reasons. And obviously, I have Disney Plus now, and everyone's talking about it because mm-hmm. you know the finale it's and it's good. really yes, really it's good. Amazing. And I don't dislike. I, I've seen a couple episodes and I really loved. The episodes that I did saw, I just haven't had the time or haven't put the put aside the time to sit down and watch episodes and binge it. So yesterday, I started watching a couple episodes with my daughter, and it was amazing. So I think that was the perfect way to start celebrating May the 4th was to start a show that I should have watched years and years ago. Many, many years ago. Well, better <laughs> late say, to the party than ever. You yeah. had me. You had me in the first half. There, I was a little worried. <laughs> she was, and, and you know what? She's she's definitely going to be shouting at people on the internet in no time about how bad the last three episodes are. She's lo- absolutely loves Star Wars. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I loved it. Uh, me personally, Star Wars Day uh, paint stream. I decided to paint some Star Wars Legion models. So I got my little rebel force from the starter set. So I'm painting Luke and the little rebels and the little Walker and stuff. And that's been really fun. I was working. So I did nothing. (laughs) I I was also working. You you weren't calling out gold squadron patterns to to flyers? I would have have loved to. We had our first fire, so it was actually kind of busy. Oh, nice. Now I have to be serious. (sighs) Oh, damn. Bleh. Uh, all right. Well, uh, next question comes from Mr. Patron Patrick. A uh, friend of mine is getting back in after a long hiatus since 5th edition. Okay, 5th edition. Oh, no. He's trying to start by using old Marine stuff he still has, oh, of course. No. Is there a good start to a list that focuses on Bolters and the Land Raider Crusader? Or what chapter would you suggest for mainly chunks of Marines with Bolters and a Land Raider Crusader? Ooh. Uh, Black Templars. I, I was just about to say Crusader, Black Templars. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. They yeah. even get some cool strats that they use when there's a Landry Crusader yeah. on the table. One just cool saying. Strat. But it's yeah. a, one yeah. cool strat. It's actually it cool. Is, it is a really good strat. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really good. <laughs> By the way, I use my Landry Crusader with my Templars all the time, and it's still awesome. I, I yeah. still love it. I mean, yeah, Devout yeah. Push is a thing. It's like the one thing they have, but it's yeah. really good. 
so yeah, Patrick. More importantly, I would ask your friend what their what their goal is, what they want out of the the yeah. game of forty k. I would do lend they, them do models. They want to go to tournaments. Also, yes, Give lend them models, models if Don't you have them. Don't let him do that. Uh, buy buy really cheap used models on eBay if you, get, if you can to expand their army. Get some starter uh, Primaris uh, Marines for like a dollar. Yes, the push fit um, ones. But yeah, Patrick, I would I would ask what your friend is wants to ultimately get out of it if he wants to be more casual. I'd say just stick with Black Templars forever. Have a good time painting black and white Space Marine, Angry Space Marines. Um, but if he wants to maybe go to tournaments more, um, I would have him move towards um, a little bit more competitive Primaris Marine, things like that. doesn't have to go full-on metal list chasing, but um, I would have him move towards things that, that uh, perform well in other factions, mm. uh, in other Space Marine chapters specifically. Mm-hmm. All right. Patron TJ wants to know, how are you all keeping your hobby goals on track without having tournaments to plan for? AZ TJ, I am not. <laughs> no, that was my uh, Yeah, I just, I don't know. My 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 uh, uh, isolation has been um, fo- mainly focused on video games and, and working because I'm still working at Frontline uh, and spending time with the family and cooking. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done a lot. I've made some delicious fajitas burritos last night it would make amazing. me a fajita when i was there last i would time. definitely you know what i've got a steak with your name on it peter next time you come down and visit well we hop in the pool cross fingers cross we'll fingers see. this january february buddy at least we'll see we'll see it's definitely up in the air we're not going um, to a bad taco place though not well, again uh, although you know who is hobbying who can talk about it mr scary that's right all the time Every day. <laughs> the end. All right. Uh, finally, <laughs> nothing patron, <further. laughs> patron Ryan wants to know where the spring FAQ, yo? That is a really um, good question. <laughs> well, there haven't been any big events. So. Yeah. Someone someone mentioned it earlier, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> the spring FAQ was, was supposed to happen this month, and it never did. Um, so, Pablo, you know, you might have heard that something like has been in, like affecting the entire planet right now. And I feel fever like, fever. I feel like that would be not to you know put it down like right now the pandemic that's happening very like very serious, you know, mm-hmm. make sure you stay safe out there folks. Yes. Um you know follow the follow like health guidelines and the experts and whatnot and you know yes, I think that the spring FAQ, I get questions about it. It's it's probably there. They probably just have it ready. They just don't want to like, you know, probably I don't know, make Grey Knight players feel depressed because they got FAQ'd or something. Yeah. During this time, or, you know, things like that. So who knows? We'll see. Like yeah, as as things get started, I'm I'm pretty sure GW will want to stay on schedule and kind of yeah know, release it. Yeah. By May. I mean, I'll yeah. say that or like June or July. The creative team went back to work this week. That's why we've started seeing new community articles that are actually about models again. Yeah. Um and uh, the re- and like the production team went back to work uh, which they announced. So, I would say at this point if there's going to be one, it should be soon. It should be yeah, very soon. I was I was actually thinking that uh that's still probably on schedule. They still probably have it. Um they don't they do make changes based off of super mages, right? So Adepticon yeah. would definitely have affected the spring FAQ. However, it's not they don't make the entire FAQ around the the super major uh, immediately after the super major, right? So they don't immediately look at the Adepticon and go like, okay, it's time to write this FAQ. They they look at an entire 
um, you know, season or, or whatever they call it between the last FAQ or chapter approved in this case. And they make the decision then. And I'm not saying, I, I think this is how it works. Uh, I don't know for mm. sure. However, sure, just, judging, <laughs> just judging from how they've kind of talked about the FAQ and their community articles and kind through some of the decision-making processes that they've explained on their articles and in their FAQs, it feels like they're very much looking at the entire uh, season holistically. They're not just looking at one thing or they're not looking at the results from one tournament. Uh, so, Anyways, I, I would I would say that we're probably just going we're probably going to be getting it. It's probably just been delayed, just like their their big uh, Adepticon reveal. Uh, you know, they're they're drawing it out across multiple weeks, uh, probably because of production. <laughs> it's probably a lot harder to you know produce them, which I think is why they did it. So it's delayed like literally everything else. So um, you know, I think we'll still get it. It's just uh, not going to be in April, obviously, because it's in May now. But yeah, I think we'll get it soon. Let us hope so. All right. Uh, that is it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Chapter Tactics. Next week, there will no be no episode of Chapter Tactics. I might have an emergency episode the following Tuesday. Also, if you noticed, this episode did come out a day late. That is just simply because of scheduling. Uh, everyone was busy at their homes doing or nothing your computer to record. Again. Or your computer died again. Or whatever. <laughs> However... However, uh, next week there probably won't be a Chapter Tactics episode. It is actually uh, my wife's and I's anniversary. We have um, some special stuff planned. So uh, yeah, we record every Monday night, and she asked me, uh, she she uh, you know asked me if I could not record that day and uh, if we could do something on that day. So I might record the day after or the day before, depending on depending on uh, a GW if they release like the spring FAQ over the weekend or whatever um i'm definitely going to try and talk about that however don't expect an episode next week uh but we will of course after that continue on and um maybe even as more places open up we might start seeing like micro events although um i personally don't think hope that that's not the case however there might be there's, something that happens there's too. a couple that have been scheduled we'll hope we'll see how yeah. how they play out uh, we're, we're also getting still tts leagues Yes, we're also getting into the realm of uncertainty, uh, where obviously events like in May have been canceled, um, some in June, however, uh, and some in July even. However, uh, a lot of events, especially in the 40k world, um, that are you know ha- happening in like July, August, September, uh, you know, no one knows. They haven't been canceled yet, so we'll probably start to see either more cancelizations or um, otherwise uh, coming up coming up this month too so keep an eye out for that too that's going to be pretty interesting to follow as well all right remember to stay safe and more importantly keep everyone else safe too but also listen to more scary scary if they like you and they want to listen to more of you where can they find you in the webway at scardcast everywhere all right and then peter where can they hear or read more sultry peter the falcon commentary sure i got my website 40kstats.com sometime this week i'll be doing a pretty extensive article on what's been going on at least in my life um you can catch me live on the honest wargamer every tuesday morning my time at like five in the morning i've been uh, doing that super fun except for the five in the morning part and uh, this saturday i'll be i think i'm allowed to say it i'll be doing uh, the best in faction um one year anniversary podcast on Twitch uh, on Saturday morning uh, as like one of their 
voted uh, number one, whatchamacallit, co-stars or whatever. Guest stars, guest hosts, whoever. I don't know what they call it. That's cool. Biff Pod. All right. And then uh, Brandon, because people still ask me over and over and over, how do they find this super secret top guard group, Brandon, that that you keep mentioning every episode? Message me on Facebook. And uh, I hope to have an announcement soon about a project I've been working on Ooh. that puts my uh, design skills to the test, so we'll see. Nice. Right. Are you going to make a robot? We'll see. Uh, what, like a like a selfie? Peter, Brandon doesn't make robots. He makes things that make robots stronger. I know. That's the scariest part. Wait till he yeah. actually builds a robot from scratch. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm sure he's actually already built a robot from scratch. Um, Brandon? Yes. clones himself? <laughs> <laughs> What was your robot's name that you built from scratch, Brandon? Um, it was. Oh, I, I don't even want to get into this. Beep they don't have boop. names, but they're still my children. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have names. They have serial numbers, but they're Get still my names. children. Oh, Project names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anyways, goodness. all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You are all, of course, the best <laughs> listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one. Bye. Bye bye.